0: Welcome to Invested in Climate. Protecting the planet and decarbonizing the global economy is the challenge of our time. We all have a role to play and the opportunity we face is unprecedented. Invested in Climate aims to help people do more to address climate change through their work, investment, lifestyle, and activism. I'm your host, Jason Rissman. I support a growing community of top climate and ESG leaders as the Chief Experience Officer at Wealth and I'm an advisor to the climate practice at IDEO. I'm also an investor and startup advisor, and when it comes to climate action, I know I'll be a lifelong learner, always looking to have more impact. If you like what you hear, give us a good rating on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you found us. Sign up for updates and suggest ideas for future episodes at investedinclimate.com. Follow us on social, subscribe, and spread the word. Thanks for joining. Hi folks. Today, we're joined by three team members of Braemar Energy Ventures: ESG head Lori Collins, partner Don Tappan, and co-founder and managing partner Bill Lessie. I was excited to talk to the Braemar team because their firm has been investing in energy companies for over 20 years, and have backed some early category-defining pioneers like ChargePoint and Enerna. And since they're investing in a wide range of companies driving the energy transition, they bring broad insights to today's climate tech opportunities as well as historical lessons from the clean tech 1.0 years. We dive deep into three of their investments, offering insights to the carbon transformation market, applying AI to upgrade the grid, and last, but definitely not least, nuclear fusion. We talk about the trends in those spaces, why Braemar made the bets that they did, the ESG and impact consideration of their portfolio companies, and much more. Enjoy. Enjoy. Lori, Bill, Don, welcome to Invested in Climate. Great to have you here today. Thank you for having
1: me.
2: Thanks, Jason. Thanks. you are excited to be here.
0: Fantastic. Well, I really appreciate having all three of you here, as I know your different perspectives will really help us get to know the opportunities that you're seeing and get into the nuance and really better understand the spaces that you cover. Let's start with some really quick introductions. Lori, will you please kick us off and tell us just briefly about your role and How you got into the work that you're doing?
2: My role at Braemar is as their ESG lead. And so in that role, I cover both Braemar's internal ESG program and I work with the portfolio companies on their ESG programs and initiatives. So for our internal program, we look at things like our diversity and inclusion policy, our ESG policy, and how we evaluate companies in the screening and due diligence process for new investments. And we also work with our limited partners to answer their questions for their own ESG and impact programs. So on the portfolio company side, we are helping bring these companies along with all the same tools that we use internally at Braemar. So each company has annual ESG reporting. We work with select companies on case studies for our annual Braemar impact and ESG report. And we provide our portfolio companies with the suite of two dozen ESG-related policies to consider for their businesses. All of these tools help to position the companies for their exits, whether it's through acquisition or IPO, having a strong foundation in ESG is important.
0: Fantastic. Thank you, Laurie. Don, over to you.
1: Thanks, Jason. So I'm a partner with Breymar. I have been with the firm for over 10 years now. I'm originally from Detroit, degrees in mechanical engineering. Spent a couple of years working in the energy space as a consultant, but having been with Brainmar for ten years, have worked with Bill and Neil and across the portfolio. Being from Detroit, I do a lot of our work in the mobility space, but also increasingly with electrification and all of that. Do a lot of our work with the kind of the distribution side of the grid, which you see a lot more. Obviously, electric vehicles kind of overlapping and becoming a good kind of interaction of all of those. Fantastic, thank
0: you, Don. Bill, we'd love to hear your story as well. And since you're the co-founder of Braemar, please feel free to tell
3: us a bit about the founding of the firm. Well, again, thanks for being here as well. Braemar Energy Ventures was co-founded by myself and a gentleman named Neil Suslack, a friend from high school. We both had this idea that there wasn't enough activity and innovation in the venture capital markets and ultimately moving into more infrastructure-related technologies that really were underserved. So we combined our forces. He came from a banking background, I came from an operations and technology background in energy, and we set out to use that mix of talents to get Braemar started. So we actually went to market. This is the challenging part. We went to market in the fall of 2001, but I think if most of you may remember that the very sad incident happened in 2001, which is 9/11. Between that and then ultimately starting the firm or kicking off the firm in 2003, we had quite a slog, but in the end, I think we convinced enough people who were interested in investing in the space that this was an underserved area, that we had the talents, and then we, I might add, brought in a third partner who was very experienced, who had been an MIT professor, and had been in private equity and venture capital, so that between myself and Neil and a gentleman named George Reichenbach, the firm got started and we were off to the races. Very good, thanks, Bill. And since the
0: firm has now been around for over 20 years, give us a sense of how it's different today,
3: particularly in terms of our focus today
0: in terms of talking about the energy transition.
3: Well, when we entered the market, the word energy transition wasn't really being used. Decarbonization was used periodically, but not at the same level it is today. The focus was really just making cleaner energy, cleaner supply chains, anything that had to do with delivering of electricity cleaner fuels, converting waste, all those things which are part of sustainability trends were part of that, but how we could deliver services more efficiently and all that sort of thing. So the overall areas were similar, but the emphasis was different because it really wasn't until the Paris Climate Accord was signed in 2016 that the really massive push towards decarbonization really start to happen. It's interesting though, because going back many decades, when I was a student, we were talking about climate change and I was part of a graduate program that focused on atmospheric modeling around climate change. But the end of the day, people were studying it more than being proactive to address it. So, In the early days of Braemar, a lot of focus on clean energy, a lot of focus on waste, a lot of things on using digital capabilities to improve the way in which services were delivered. But not as much activity on decarbonization. That has really, really amplified in the last seven years.
0: Thanks so much, Bill. Your firm lived through the first wave of Clean Tech 1.0, and now we're in a second phase that people are thinking of as Climate Tech. There's been a big boom in terms of the number of investments and the funds that are raised, but also more recently, an economic downturn that is presenting a real challenge to startups and investors. Since you're not new to this game and have invested through downturns in the past, I'm curious, what were some of the learnings from that first phase that are helping you navigate through this moment?
3: There's been a lot of learnings because when you think about traditionally in venture capital, capital efficiency, or going through a certain type of process, like an FDA process with biotech was more the norm. And here you're dealing with, instead of dealing with bits and a process that kind of creates value through a certain set of conditions, a much broader industrial type of companies that have, I wouldn't say more complexity so much as just more capital requirements, making it more difficult to get to exits, more difficult to finance companies. So what we've learned from the first go around in, in clean tech one, if you want to call it that, was that we have to be much better prepared on how we position our different tranches of capital, of the timelines that we have for supporting companies, the type of individuals who have to work through different staging of capital. And how we position for exits at the right time. These are things that were relatively new at the time of let's call it clean tech 1.0. That we've learned a lot from. We're applying that wisdom today in the markets that we have. As you said, contrarian markets where the interest rates are up, appetite for risk is down, and we just are working very hard to position the companies so that they are protected in sort of these rainy day conditions while we work towards optimizing our investments and hopefully getting to a very attractive outcome. Thanks so much, Bill.
0: Don, let's go over to you. You're investing across a wide spectrum of companies at Braemar from fuels and chemicals, biofuels, built environment, mobility. Help us understand the company's investment thesis.
1: Lots of credit to Bill and Neil and George when they first started Braemar 20 years ago. The thesis then and today and 20 years in the future The energy system, multi-trillion dollar built system across how we get our power, all the different things in energy move along, there's a ton of different areas and sectors that that need transformation. If you think back 20 years ago, fossil derived, very analog, kind of very linear system, you think 20 years in the future or, or longer will be distributed system decarbonized have a bunch more kind of intelligence and pieces into it so within that there's lots of different areas that have opportunities that you look at obviously electrification of everything is sort of an overall trend that we all see in vehicles we invested in charge point 11 years ago when there were no evs and now there's a bunch right but you think about okay how we make steel how do we do buildings how do we heat our homes, all these different things that you can kind of think through about, okay, what does that mean? What does that enable from flexibility, intelligence, and kind of where do you overlay all of those pieces? So I think we're seeing a lot of stuff, especially on the home side. So how does folks who want to have a better environment that they live in, so bills up in Boston, there's lots of oil is what's used to heat a lot of homes up there, obviously, going down and replacing that with different things. And it looks different across the country in different areas. But people generally improving the quality of their life in combination decarbonizing has been certainly important there.
0: Thanks, Don. Related to the point of the dependence on oil for heating homes in Boston, I actually recently interviewed Kathy Hunan, CEO of Dandelion Energy, a geothermal heat pump company that's focusing on the Northeast to address the exact opportunity you're describing. So something for listeners to check out if they're interested it sounds like you have a broad thesis related to the many enabling technologies that'll drive electrification and the energy transition. So I'm curious to hear, what's something that you've learned over your decade of investing in this space that you think will be particularly helpful for this moment?
1: We've learned this historically. I think one way that we've kind of solved the capital challenges and intensity of investment figuring out how to get a small company to work in these large spaces. If you boil down what we all do, an energy system is a physical system. So at the end of the day, something moves, something gets warmer, something, some process happens, finding the right partners. And that can mean big companies and finding the right ways to line that up, I think is quite important. And there certainly comes challenges with that and different ups and downs and things like that. But being able to recognize that our startups, your small company of 20 or 30 people, is going to be interacting with a utility with 100,000 employees, with an oil and gas company with 50,000 employees, with whatever it may be. So, making sure to navigate that, I think, is an important piece that we look at as an overlay for everything we do. Okay, we're going to put five, 10, 20 million dollars in this company, never going to be enough, right? They're going to need more capital in the future. So, how do we line that up? with partners, with, you know, there are some later stage funds now and making sure that they have a kind of path going forward.
0: Great. Thank you, Don, a lot there. And I'm sure a lot that we will revisit. Lori, let's turn to you and let's talk ESG and impact. Not all venture firms have someone focused on ESG and impact. So I'm curious about the role that you're playing both internally and with the portfolio.
2: Sure. Well, I touched on it a little bit earlier. So I'm going to back up a bit and give my role as far as what my experience has been that I bring to it. I spent many years in the investments world with Fidelity Investments and Bank of America. And then I later worked for a successful startup that went public. And I also ran an accelerator. So I've been on the other side. I've been on the company side and understand the pressures of a growing company. And I think that helps to bring that perspective, understanding where ESG fits in for a small company or a growing company. So I can relate to the companies and how ESG helps them be more competitive and more attractive to investors.
0: So tell us more about the ways that you help the portfolio companies and particularly for climate tech companies, I'm sure that reducing emissions and removing carbon is a core focus of theirs. Are you in the weeds there helping them quantify their environmental impact, or are you also there helping them think about other elements of ESG?
2: Quantifying impact is certainly part of our work, but we also look at each company's internal carbon footprint. So, their scope one and scope two emissions from the energy use in their operations. And we encourage companies to assess their indirect emissions as well, the scope three, mostly by measuring the impact of employee travel. And you asked about the other elements. So as to that part of your question, yes, every company also looks at the S and the G. So the S, the social impact, such as employee diversity, are important long-term. I like to call it skating to where the puck is going. So position your company to reflect the workforce and customer base of the future, to improve long-term performance. There's companies that are looking out to where that employee base and customer base is going are going to be more competitive, and the more competitive companies are the best investments. On the governance side, we ask companies to look at things like the ratio of women to men on their boards. That's a key metric. And also things like data security, hazardous waste, things you might expect under governance.
0: Great. Thank you, Laurie. We'll definitely come back to learn more about that at a company level as we learn more about some of the companies that Braemar has invested in. Bill, I'd love to come back to you. You've been in this field for a long time and you talked a bit about how the field has changed, but I'd love to hear your thoughts about how it's changed in particular in terms of the profit pools that you see today and over the next several years and what spaces you see as offering the best investment opportunities.
3: That's a great question. Well, look, I think one of the things that we've seen is digital enablement really improves the efficiency of businesses. Whether you're in energy transition or you're doing some other industrial process, digitization is going to play a critical role. So the extent that you're applying digitization to hard debate problems is going to be an important part of how we build systems, how we manage supply chains, how we find fundamental ways in which to organize a more sustainable say, path for development of a product or a process. That is really something we're going to be looking at. In other words, you can have a great technology that might improve cleaner fuel. It might provide a chemical that isn't produced from carbon. These are all things that add value. But if you don't know how to get it into the supply chain, you don't have to do it efficiently, then you kind of are a little bit in a moat, right? And you just aren't able to bring the full value. I think the use of, let's call it, digital systems wherever we can use them to improve upon the delivery of services that are reducing carbon, that are improving functionality, and overall allowing you to scale is going to be a really big part of how we look at making profits. This is not something that we really address that much in fund one or fund two, a little more in fund three through some of our investments, but certainly in future funds, we will be looking at how to manage that and do it in a way That we can find points of inflection that really reflect value. Because what you don't want to do is you put a ton of money in and it goes into a money sink and you're three quarters of the way there. And then you really don't have the proper way to get to scale or partner or do all the things you need to do. But it's setting up very efficient systems of collaboration and being able to scale. You know, this is what happened in the bits world, right? In the molecules and in the electron worlds of energy transition, it's more challenging than doing it in bits because in bits and bytes, You can move things much faster and more efficiently. But we need to apply as much of those models to, let's say, from the internet and internet of things to what we can do to the energy transition and make things better, not just as good, like making the same thing all over again, but make them better and use as much efficiency as possible. Thanks,
0: Bill. Let's get specific now and learn through some tangible examples. To give listeners a sense of what's coming and also to manage our time, I'd love for us to talk about three companies that you've invested in Carbon Free, Utilidata, and General Fusion. Let's start with Carbon Free. Bill, would you kick us off and help us learn about that company and tell us why
3: you invested? So, Carbon Free, which is carbon free chemicals, but let's call it Carbon Free because that's what we all call it. We invested in them because they had developed a scalable technology to mineralize CO2 waste from industrial processes and convert that into useful products. So instead of just sequestering it and putting it in the ground, what we're motivated by is to actually take that CO2 and make a product and ideally make a better product with that waste CO2. For us, that was very inspirational. And the company has gone through some cycles of changes for a number of venture-related type of challenges. But overall, the excitement of the thesis is that we can take this massive amount of CO2 it comes from industrial processes, whether it's from a coal-fired cement plant, whether it comes from steel, all these hard-to-evade industries, industries that have invested billions and billions and billions of dollars in facilities and, quite frankly, don't want to shut down or have decarbonization goals they want to meet, and they want a solution that's ready-made, that doesn't require infrastructure, just requires having access to the CO2 and having some... Adjacent land that they can set up the carbon free system. And that is what got us excited about it that we could really make something valuable at it. And the good news about this, their approach by mineralization, you have a very low amount of energy that's required and the output is very high value. So a combination of low energy, high value product, and not needing any major infrastructure other than the typical on site system that makes products out of CO2, you pretty much have a thesis that really is a winning thesis. Fantastic. Bill, I think one of the things that's really interesting to
0: learn about with carbon-free chemicals is that it's not just one company's approach, but you're learning about the carbon capture and carbon transformation market and where it's potentially going. And so I'd love to hear any thoughts that you have of what have you learned about the state of that market and its future?
3: Well, I think it's a combination of corporate goals, financial incentives that have been built into both the tax code and now more recently into the Inflation Reduction Act, the so-called IRA, have been a big stimulant for further investment in the space so that if you qualify, you can receive significant credits, which is very valuable. And that's great. And there are a number of players that are in the process of establishing facilities for that purpose. But as I sort of mentioned about our approach, is more looking at a company that instead of being a cost center, which is what CO2 technically is, because if you're just disposing of it, you're effectively creating an underground landfill. And by the way, I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't be doing that because we do need to find multiple ways to get rid of carbon dioxide from industrial processes. But in my opinion, and I think depending probably shared by Braemar, is that we strongly believe that we should create a profit center rather than a cost center. And by putting more emphasis in the markets where there is an ability to make a product out of CO2 and deliver it to a large market, we're better off than just following the government incentives that are attractive and, again, are suggesting that people shouldn't do it. However, in our opinion, emphasis should be more on the profit side versus the cost side.
0: Laurie, from an impact perspective, I'd love to hear how you see carbon-free and the space more generally. Carbon capture has been criticized for helping companies avoid reducing their emissions. So how do you see carbon-free's approach and their impact potential?
2: I'm going to be echoing some of the comments that Bill just made, but I think carbon-free has a brilliant solution. As Bill has described, it not only helps companies reduce carbon in the atmosphere, It creates a way to monetize that carbon instead of just stuffing it in the ground. So it's the ultimate circular economy, and it provides an incentive to do more capturing of carbon. So as Bill has noted, that should motivate other companies to be interested in capturing carbon if you can make money on it, if you can productize it and monetize it. I think it's a really important solution Is the carbon capture and utilization is a little bit different from just carbon capture and storage, as Bill has noted. So some sectors of the economy, like steel, are critical, but they're nowhere close to being able to eliminate all their carbon emissions. So a U.S. steel is reducing the emissions by partnering with carbon-free, and it's not letting U.S. steel off the hook at all, to say that when they're taking these steps. So I think it's a really important impact. In terms of the encouraging others to consider carbon capture, there's a way to make money on it.
3: Thanks, Laurie. And how much carbon are we talking about? What sort of impacts could carbon-free have? Aspirationally, it's getting to the gigaton level. Right now, we want to go from kilotons to megatons and continue a a fast-paced growth and aspirationally get to gigatons, which is, I believe, very feasible over the right time period and with good execution. Thank you, Bill. Thank you,
0: Laurie. Don, let's move on to you and to hear about Utilidata. Tell us a bit about the company and why you invested.
1: Happy to talk through kind of the history of it. So Utilidata is a company that at its core provides software to optimize the distribution system of the grid. If you think of what has gone on over the last couple of years with an increasing number of endpoints and devices and all the different pieces there, there's an increasing just complexity. And how you utilize machine learning and software and AI is the latest thing to do that to better optimize the system. So whether that's coordination between substation and homes, ongoing performance of different pieces of it, you need more information, more data, and more compute. What we've been focused on and successfully kind of bringing to market is working with NVIDIA, so the world leader in GPUs, to build a custom piece of silicon that will be placed at the grid edge, so in smart meters of hopefully every home in the country, to allow for each individual homeowner to have their own personalized, individualized system that optimizes the grid across the entire system. So imagine taking the distributed data points, so on everyone's home, feeding all of those between each other, and then eventually up, and allows you to get the full system view which allows you to, in real time and predictively, be able to see what's actually going on. And so, different from other approaches, we've obviously worked with different media manufacturers and the data you get. The system has historically been limited by how much data you can get and what throughput you can get it, right? Everyone, you can get meter data and 10 minute intervals and data ahead. But as of now, what you get is a CSV file. You get a CSV file that's mailed overnight you can kind of make some interpolations there. But with our partnership with NVIDIA, it's not quite everyone's going to have a giant AI system on their house, but lots of compute capacity and the ability to say, OK, here's the waveform that is in my home. What does that mean for all of the devices? And then be able to coordinate between all of them. So what you can actually do is you can do all kinds of interesting Um, Interpolations, right? So if one home is having certain performance and the home next to it is having different performance, you can actually see that a tree is on the lines between those two houses because there'll be a very infinitesimal phase change between it. So lots of cool things that go into it about when you think about problems that we're having now, interconnection piece of timing. So that comes up because we don't know what's in the system. So the system's conservative. If you have better data, you can say, okay, this green light, this EV charger. You can green light this solar system because you have better visibility versus right now, if you don't know, you kind of have to take the conservative view. So we're quite excited about it. It's this initial systems have been stood up. We've got them running in Placid and have a bunch of interesting things going with a bunch of large utilities across the country that in the near future, you will see an NVIDIA GPU with a Utilidata software running on top of it and being able to power basically the AI for the grid
0: running the AI for the grid, that definitely sounds powerful and important. And again, I think what's really interesting here is not just your investment in utility data, but also the perspective it offers on the future of the grid. In some ways, it sounds like we're working towards building a a digital twin for the grid. Is that right?
1: I think that's something why we believe in this approach and are quite strong on it. If you think of All of the things that are out there, if you want to have data about their customers, what they're using, you want to have proper billing for their solar, you want to have rate structures for people who have EVs, all of those things are dependent on having good data and good analytics on site. So right now, we don't have that. The utility doesn't have visibility. You put a charger in your home, in your garage, the utility has no idea at all. And they may get some idea over some time that, okay, a month later that it kind of came on and some pieces there. But we think of this platform that Utilidata puts out there enables all of those use cases. So if you think of any sort of approach, if you want to do a managed charging program, how do you do a managed charging program if you don't have real-time visibility into what's going on? You then combine that with the GPU compute, which the GPU, you need it for a bunch of the waveform transformations. You do these fast-forward transforms to do frequency behavior and all those pieces but you can actually do the work at the edge. So the digital twin, it's not just a digital twin. Like you think of. there's a big model that's in some network operating center somewhere, you can actually have the digital twin and running predictions for every site, for every home. So your home knows exactly what's going on around it. And so that's its digital twin, but can also make neural net drive real-time forecasts of what's going to happen in each specific location. So my home... Will look slightly different from your home, but we'll each have our own sort of personal digital twin, which will be communicating with each other and having those inputs and feedbacks, but then also doing kind of the predictions on top of that as well. So it's again one of these things about being truly distributed. If you think of what the edge point is, it is the home and where you plug something in, and that's where the utility is and the pieces there, that it's a completely unique approach to having the ability to do all those things, right? If you have a Nest thermostat, that's interesting and it's great. It knows its small piece. It knows your temperature. It knows the different pieces there. It has no idea what the voltage coming down the line from the substation is. It doesn't know what the phase, what's going out, the frequency of the grid, right? All of those things. So we see all of that and then can both predict and then solve for and actually take action as well against all of those pieces as
0: Thanks, Don. Lori, we'd love to come back to you and let's hear about the impact potential for this space, as well as the particular challenges a company like Utilidata faces.
2: As Don and Bill have said, the grid management is obviously a huge challenge for utilities. They want to move towards renewable energies, but their systems are not really set up for it. Most utilities are designed for stable power sources like coal, gas, and nuclear. So you throw in renewables and it's a challenge, whether they own the solar and wind or whether they're connecting to third parties. And then on top of that, integrating electric vehicles, which the utilities love the added electricity business from EVs, but it's another curveball to their operations. So a company like Utilidata is providing for a systems change, providing a solution to the challenge that many utilities are facing. And of course, the big winners are the communities that tend to hold their local power companies accountable when the lights go out it's not just the lights, it's also the refrigerators, the dialysis machines, everything that people depend on with their electricity. The challenge for a company like Utilidata is really breaking through the status quo of how utilities have always done business. The utilities want it, but they're typically conservative companies and they have to think differently to embrace the technology.
0: Fantastic. Well, we've talked about chemicals and carbon transformation. We've talked about utilities and grid management. Now, I suppose it's time to talk about Fusion. So let's move on to General Fusion, a company that you've been working on and that's been developing and commercializing Fusion for over 20 years now. So Bill, Don,
3: which of you would like to tell us about the company? So the beauty of Fusion to start with is, of course, that you are effectively creating a mini sun. And if you do it right, there's very little radiation in the process. You're typically using seawater basically deuterium, which is heavy water that you find in seawater. And then you use, in our case, lithium to extract some tritium, and then you can keep rebreeding that tritium. So you basically have very, very low cost fuel that is rebred in the process. And virtually, I don't like to use this term loosely, but limitless. And one of the attractions of having something that has very little, almost no radiation, has almost limited feedstock and can be done Somewhere between six and ten million times more dense than than say coal. You don't have to use the land that you do in solar and wind. And this is of course not suggesting that solar and wind shouldn't continue to grow. Very important that we continue to develop all of our energy sources, our power sources. But fusion has an incredibly attractive aspect to it and why it's been sought after for so many years. We're now at the point where, unlike a few years ago, where we have many well capitalized Private fusion companies. And this is a relatively new phenomenon. There were only three when we started investing, really. And General Fusion, the one we chose, because we believe that a combination of the elegance of the technology, the mindset of the founders at the time on how to keep it simple, use existing infrastructure, and do things that minimize the complexities of getting to a net gain reaction where you're producing more power than you're taking in fell into this. But general fusion is doing is they're kind of like a hybrid between the two main schools of thought of fusion. So there's confinement fusion where people use these tokamak magnets that you probably heard about and most people have heard about it in some form or another. And then separately, you have inertial fusion where you basically use lasers to drive an enormous amount of energy into a very small cross section into the certain type of pellet that basically also becomes fusionable. And of course, there was a lot of excitement within the past year at Lawrence Livermore when within a certain set of parameters, they showed net gain and that made global news. What we're trying to do is take the best of both of those technologies and marry them. So we're we're using the pulse aspect of laser fusion, but we're also using the confinement aspect of what has traditionally been the confinement fusion when it's done mostly by Tokamaks. And we believe by hybridizing those two things, you get economies or you get to an economic value point that is higher value than if you did one or the other. So it's a hybrid process. In our case, the beauty of it is we use mechanical processing to make it go. In other words, we compress plasma almost like a giant diesel engine. It's in some ways much less complex from the standpoint of compression because all we're doing is compressing it at one cycle per second. Your electricity that you get every continuously, the electricity that we're using right now cycles at 60 times per second. This is only going once per second, so it's like one, two, three, that kind of thing. And if you do it right, and this is where it gets the complicated part, in order to get it right, and everything has to be even so you don't have energy losses, but when you do get it right, you're going to get to that net gain. And that's where general fusion right now has inherently solved most of the problems around fusion. But like most others, they still need to get to the point where they reach the temperatures of fusion and then show net gain. And once they've done that, which they're in the process of doing, They'll be ready to go to the next step to go commercial demo and then ultimately to commercial fusion. The technology, aside from marrying the best of the two different schools that I mentioned, you don't have to worry about how you extract the heat, which is a huge advantage of this technology. You're using the existing supply chain, you rebreed the fuel, it's inherently very sturdy. It's elegantly simple in terms of how you're going about getting a plant that would be built with this technology. So I think it's in my opinion, very biased, the best way to go about this. There are ways to innovate the whole process over time where you move to different ways to enhance what we've already started with the uh, current development process. But I think in terms of getting to cost parity and doing it in a sustainable way, this is really one of the best approaches out there. And, and between the team we have and the methodology they've developed for de-risking the technology, we think we've picked a very good approach to this process and a good company.
0: Fusion is great, making it simpler, even better. The statement about fusion that you always hear is that it's going to be amazing and it's 20 to 30 years away. So I'm curious, are we closer or what sort of time frame are you thinking of in terms of fusion actually coming to market?
3: There's going to be a lot of different schools about this. I think the the general suggestion by a number of fusion companies is that between now and the latter part of the decade, we're going to prove what We need to prove in terms of showing temperature and net gain. And in the latter part of this decade, we then start to go to the next step, which is to go towards commercial demonstration. Doesn't necessarily mean a full fledged fusion plan at that point, but you're ready to start building something that is getting commercial ready. I think the 2030s timeframe is generally shared by people who are cautiously optimistic. That's when commercial fusion really starts to happen. Clearly, there's no guarantee. But my personal belief is that you will start seeing commercial fusion plans start to pop up in the 2030s, probably more than just our methodology. But I think that's where it's headed. I don't think the 25, 50-year-out stuff that people were always being disappointed by or approaches that weren't scientifically proven because the data was spurious or whatever. I think we're past some of those disappointments at this point. I think it's more about just very, very disciplined. Engineering along with the science and making sure that you're making realistic goals. But I don't think you're going to, I hope, and I can't, obviously no one can guarantee this, that we're going to have another one of those things which says, oh yeah, you said it's around the corner and it's still 25 years out. I believe we're past that point.
2: I'll just note on the ESG side that, of course, they're a little earlier in their ESG journey given where they are in development. But even so, General Fusion does report on their diversity metrics. They have about 190 employees, also the diversity of their board. So they're laying the groundwork for a strong impact in their product and their approach to the business. They worked with us this year on a case study for the Braemar annual impact report that, again, just focused on the performance goals for their demonstration program. So at this point, the most important thing for General Fusion are those technical milestones, as Bill has described.
1: Seeing it in person is incredibly impressive. You go there and there's fusion, right? And the systems they have and something that's much different now, as Bill mentioned with people being out there, but there's no black magic box, right? You go there, you see it. And obviously there's lots of science and math that goes to it, but like you can see big capacitor banks and fusion goes down. And I think it's quite impressive what the team has built over the years. And we're excited about you know, moving it forward and progressing it further.
0: Bill Dunn, Lori, we've covered a lot today, and it's just a sample of the types of companies that we need as part of the energy transition and the types of companies that you're investing in. Let's leave off with a lightning round. Two questions for each of you. First, what's a hopeful prediction you have for 2024 for the climate tech space? And secondly, what's also something you think needs more attention and more work? Lori, let's start with you.
2: Okay. Prediction, more traction and mainstream interest in climate tech as climate realities set in. We're seeing them every day in the news. And I'll say for more attention, since we're talking about climate, a disproportionate impact of climate disasters on women, as well as how women can be important drivers of solutions.
0: Lori, thank you so much for bringing up that important point of how climate change is impacting women disproportionately. I'm really glad that you elevated it. Don, let's turn over to you.
1: I'd say my prediction, how about profits, right? I think a lot of, in general, tech and things out there, people kind of got the message about profitable companies. Thing to be concerned about, I'm not a macro philosopher, but interest rates matter tremendously. I think one of the things that came out of the whole SVB problem in the earlier parts of this year, recognizing how capital flows through the system. We think about venture we're underwriting 50%, 100% returns, all those kind of things. Obviously, interest rates have, have some impact. But if you are building a first-of-a-kind plant and your cost of capital just went from 8% to 15%, those that have real impacts on that, that is something that could potentially cause problems. I mean, you're seeing it a lot in a little bit beyond what we do, but in like the, the offshore wind space. You combine inflation, cost of everything going up by 30%, which happens everywhere, combined with higher interest rates. And- Things don't pencil. You certainly see some of that in the venture's time companies there, but money's not free. It's not free anymore. We had all been so very fortunate, zero interest rates, and all those different things. The climate space, we've got you know the IRA and other things, and kind of gotten support kind of behind things. So we've been able to sort of work through it. But I think definitely a lot of folks need to sort of put the math on the table and say, okay, here's how it adds up, and, and make it all work. Which. If the money costs more, then it's it's certainly more challenging. So.
0: Thanks, Don. Bill, we'll give you the final word. Prediction for 2024 and also
3: something that we should be giving some more attention to. So I tend to be cautiously optimistic about where we're headed. I think the amount of global interest in financing energy transition is never been stronger. I think that the capital markets, while being challenged right now, there are good execution on certain venture to slash call growth equity plays are successful, that you will continue to see the necessary capital come into the marketplace. Heeding also though that Don's words that venture trades matter, that of course it does, and making really good decisions about building out the businesses that are realistic. One of the nice things that we had for a short period of time, the SPAC market was also one of the bad things because the SPAC market allowed people to get capital at an earlier stage to build up businesses, but on the other hand, a lot of them weren't ready to execute at the levels and got caught up in the system arbitragers making more money than the early investors. So it's you need to be thinking about building really stable businesses. And I think Don said profitable ones that are rooted in technology, but have the right execution teams, right time of capital partners, like to see much more private equity flowing in. And I think more private equity will flow in as there's sort of, let's call it a weeding out of some of the more spurious companies that got funded a little too early. And Perhaps we're heading into, a, I think, a more steady-as-she-goes type of opportunity into 2024. By the way, that doesn't mean that I don't think it's going to be messy for a while. But I think it's going to begin to get better. I think the government programs, well, we don't want to depend on them, that they will continue to stimulate, help stimulate the private sector. In terms of looking out for things, just making sure that we investors maintain our discipline, that we pay very close attention to signals that are out there with the partners that we take on to help scale, that we don't rely too much on frothy expectations that have happened in the past in the clean tech world. And I think that with talented managers, a mix of different layers of capital with the kind of discipline and value creation that can happen from a driving good business model, those are things we've got to look out for. Because in earlier years, we kind of raced to get to the best technology and get it out, but we didn't necessarily have the business model and understanding of scale well enough understood. I think we've learned from some of those lessons, and we have to continue to learn from those lessons as we move into 2024. But overall, I'm cautiously optimistic. Great word to end on, Bill. Don, Lori, thank you
0: so much for your time and best of luck with the work that you're doing.
1: Thank you. Thanks so much.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thanks for joining us for this episode of Invested in Climate. Please remember to rate us on Apple, Spotify, or Google. Find show notes, sign up for updates, get in touch, and visualize your climate action at investedinclimate.com. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial, accounting, or legal advice. Thanks again.